Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Okay, well, today is um, Palm Sunday. And in the uh, tradition of the church, in the calendar, church calendar, we... uh, celebrate Palm Sunday as the uh, Sunday that enters into uh, what we call Holy Week. And here we're going to be celebrating uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And um, But this Palm Sunday is uh, noted as um, here in the Gospel of Matthew um, as the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as we've just read, on a donkey. And uh, this event is documented by all four of the Gospels. Uh, So it is a well-documented event in the uh, Bible. And um, just a little bit of context here for this event is that Jesus here is journeying to Jerusalem to join thousands of uh, Jewish pilgrims who were arriving for the annual feast of the Passover. Uh, The Passover feast was inaugurated in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 12, where uh, God is delivering the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. And so uh, God says, look, I have sent nine plagues uh, to Egypt, and none of those plagues uh, made a dent in Pharaoh's Heart. He had hardened his heart. Every single plague was sent uh, that was sent was sent um, uh, to soften Pharaoh's heart, but actually it had the reverse effect. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, would not let the people go. Remember, the people had been living for 430 years in, in Egypt, and they had entered into a, a period of slavery during that period. And so um, God wanted to release his people uh, as he desired freedom for his people. And so he sent all these plagues, and there's nine plagues. And the tenth was not a plague, but a punishment. It was a punishment because Pharaoh had had not responded. You know, it's interesting that when the Lord warns us, those nine plagues, they were warnings. Many times God sends things into our lives as warnings that there's future uh, uh, danger ahead. Those warnings are not bad. They are not uh, judgment. They are mercy. If you're driving and uh, there's a cliff ahead, you want that sign that says, hey, cliff ahead, stop driving down this road, right? And so the plagues were warnings that Yahweh was sending, saying, hey, I'm actually being merciful to you by sending these plagues, trying to get your attention. I think C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone, trying to get our attention. And so many times in our lives, God is saying, hey, is this painful? And you're like, yep, this is really painful, God. Why, are you, why is this happening? And the Lord's like, because I'm trying to get your attention. And so he couldn't get Pharaoh's attention. So the last thing that happens is the judgment on Egypt. And the judgment was that God's, God would send an angel called the angel of death, and the angel of death would come and kill all the firstborn children. 
would not, would not make any distinction uh, between anyone in the land. He would kill every single firstborn child in Egypt, regardless of the age. So if you were the firstborn child and you were 38, like I'm 38, you'd be dead. <laughs> All firstborn children. And so God killed so many Egypt, Egyptians that they said, we're all dead. We're dead. And, they, and, and after the judgment, they, they gladly sent Israel away and released Israel. But God said this in the midst of that judgment. God said, I want to spare my people. And so what I want you to do, this is all in Exodus chapter 12. He said, I, what, I want you to take a lamb. And it has to be a male lamb. And it has to be pure and, and perfect. And um, I want you to take the lamb. I want you to kill it. And then I want you to eat the meat. Right? So God's not vegetarian. Okay? All the vegetarians, they're like, we're out of here. I don't care. It's in the Bible. Argue with the Bible. Right? Not my problem. It's not my problem that the Bible is based. Not my problem. So, 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 God says, I want you to eat the meat, but I want you to take the blood before you cook it. I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to put it upon the doorposts of your homes. And the angel of death, when the angel of death, when the judgment comes, it will not come upon you. And isn't that amazing? How God, in the midst of tragic, horrific, catastrophic judgment, can spare you. His ability to protect you is unlimited. In Psalm chapter 91, it says that though, 10, 000, though a thousand may fall at your left side and 10,000 at your right side, it will not come near you. God protects his people. And I actually, this is partly why I love the end times. The end times don't scare me. People are talking about, you know, dispensationalists, they, they you know, being the heretics that they are, they... <laughs> They always try to fear monger and doom, doom everything, right? It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. You know, this is interesting because I do feel fine. I feel fine. I love that song. You know, nukes are going off. Everything's blowing up. I'm like, I feel fine. No, the idea is that I believe God protects his people. I believe that God can bring judgment upon a nation, and within that context, he can protect his people. God can protect you. And that should give you peace. And that should take you off of your anxiety medication with your doctor's you know, <laughs> approval. Okay? I, my doctor will not approve <laughs> me going off of any medication. But that's okay. I'm like a maraca walking down the street with all the pills inside of me, you know? So they love me in Mexico. They love me in Mexico. So, so Jesus comes in here, okay? Jesus comes in here, and I'm giving Alan a run for his money here. Uh, <laughs> Are you taking notes, Alan, wherever you are? All right, all right, there we go. So, 
um, Jesus comes in here and uh, this feast of the Passover signified the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian captivity. But Christ here, it's, it's fascinating here because he transforms this feast of the Passover, which is, again, the angel of death passing over the, 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 the homes of the Israelites. Jesus transforms the Passover feast into the Last Supper, into the communion table, which is what we took today. And it's the blood of Christ, the blood and the body of Christ, the perfect lamb. When we take communion, we are signifying that the blood of Christ is upon the doorway of our hearts, upon the doorway of the doorposts of our souls. And the death that we deserved, the death, the angel of death that brings judgment to us can no longer do that. We have, God has saved us, delivered us from slavery to sin and delivered us into a promised land of his presence. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are set free and you are delivered and you are saved. Isn't that awesome? And that is the true meaning of Passover. That is the true meaning of Passover. That Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. So this moment here when Jesus comes into Jerusalem that is inaugurating this amazing event, it's a fulfillment, first of all, of prophecy. And we note this in the text. It says this. Um, there's a prophecy in Zechariah, the book of Zechariah chapter 9, uh, that talks about a king coming and it says, shout, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. I will remove the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. And so here we see that Jesus is coming in not on a war horse, but on a donkey, signifying that he is humbling himself, that he is a king coming, but not as the world would expect that king to come. Secondly, this is a moment not simply of prophecy, but also of prophetic revelation in time, not a word that was prophesied about being fulfilled, but even a new, a new revelation. And we see this in Luke chapter 19, uh, that corresponds to this story. Verse 37 to 40, it says, As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they, Jesus starts from the Mount of Olives with just his disciples. And, it, and the, the disciples say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples had a revelation, not simply that Jesus was a prophet, which is what the people had, but that Jesus was the king. And it was actually out of that revelation of the kingship of Christ that this whole thing snowballs into multitudes of people actually you know, going down the line. I think it was like this kind of telephone game where people are just talking to each other down the line in anticipation that Jesus was coming in. But it started with the disciples having a revelation of who Jesus was. And it says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And uh, Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep silent, the very stones will cry out. So it's also 
not just a moment of prophetic revelation, but also a moment of great joy. And we see this when the crowds that went before him followed after him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I just, there's this Carmen song. Does everybody remember Carmen? Yeah, he's so cringe, but he is, he's a little cringe and a lot cringe, actually, looking back. But he has this song, uh, Hosanna, bum, 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 Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's like, I, I get that like Sebastian from the Little Mermaid feeling when I think of this and I can't get it out of my head. Um, and uh, that's why I'm in therapy. But, but it's, it's there, you know, the word Hosanna, the word Hosanna means save us. That's what it means. They're saying, save us. Save us, son of David. And they're looking to Jesus as a Davidic figure. They're looking to Jesus as a king coming in. Like David. But David didn't die for their sins, did he? Nor could he. You see, they were looking for someone in the natural. They were looking for someone to be literally David. They wanted a political revolutionary. Because that's what they were, their mind was upon the natural. Their mind was upon the political. Their mind was not upon the spiritual. And so, in verse 12, the story continues. And it says that Jesus, if you're following along and reading in in Scripture here, it says that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have perfected or prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And he immediately goes to the temple. Now, I believe there were three reasons why Jesus went to the temple. The first reason why Jesus went, if you're taking notes, which I recommend doing, is that he, Jesus was... Um, on the, on the pilgrimage to the city, all of the pilgrims who had lambs were instructed to present their lambs on the 10th day of the month, which is the day of Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus is entering in. They were, to, they were instructed to present their lambs at the temple. And they were not supposed to kill their lamb until the 14th day. But they were to present the day, the, the present the lamb, so that the lamb could be ex, uh, inspected. Remember, in Exodus chapter twelve, God said it had to be a male lamb, 
and it had to, not non-binary, okay? The lambs were male and female, okay? And, and it had to be a perfect lamb. So the priests, the job of the priest was to inspect the lamb, to make sure that's a male lamb, to make sure that's a perfect lamb, that's a good lamb. So the people were to present the lamb to the priests on the 10th day. Once the priests inspected it, then they were to sacrifice it on the 14th day. So Jesus goes right to the temple first because he is the lamb. He's presenting himself at the temple, the place of sacrifice. The second reason why Jesus goes to the temple is because he came not only to show that he was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, but also to show that he was the son of the father. In John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. My father's house. So Jesus says, I am the son of the father who owns this temple. Father God. And you have made this temple a marketplace. Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. The third reason why he came to the temple was to cleanse it of spiritual corruption. Now, you may ask, what were they doing that was so bad? What was the spiritual corruption? Well, the first thing is that they were preventing the Gentiles from entering into the court, the outer court, where the, where the Gentiles were actually given a place to come and pray to God. In Solomon's temple, there was a part where they, the, the temple was uh, uh, enabling uh, certain people who were foreigners to come in who wanted to pray to the God of Israel. And we know that God even promised Abraham that in him and through him, all nations would be blessed. Jesus said, this is a house of prayer for all nations. You see, what was taking place was that the money changers and the people selling doves and the people selling animals and exchanging uh, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, commerce were blocking the entrance for the temple to the, for the, for the Gentiles. So the, the Gentiles could not come and could not experience the presence of God. They were, they were clogging this area that was meant to be for the Gentiles. And God had a heart for the Gentiles. God loved the world. And so he wants the world to be able to come and worship the second thing is, is that they were obstructing the required Passover sacrifices of the pilgrims by unjustly profiting off of them. So they were actually taking the, uh, the requirement that the pilgrims all had to have a, uh, a proper lamb, and they were saying, you know, we're going to charge you a usurious amount of money uh, an unjust amount of money to purchase this lamb or to purchase these doves. And so God, you know, really God did not have a problem, I don't think, with the exchange. I don't think, because the Bible also says in Exodus 12 that if you couldn't afford a lamb, you were allowed to bring doves. 
you know, so doves were signifying people who were, you know, not very well off. And God's like, you can still bring a sacrifice even if you're not very well off. But they were charging an arm and a leg to get this. And they were also, it says they were money changers there. They were just exchanging money. They were just like setting up like a bank. Like, what are you even doing there? This has nothing to do with buying sacrifices. You, you guys are just setting up a bank. You guys are just making money for the sake of making money. It has even nothing to do with the sacrifices. Now, this is an interesting thing because, they again, they were supposed to be on the Mount of Olives doing this. But they moved the business into the temple. And so Jesus says, you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of robbers. And they were robbing people, not just of money, but robbing them of prayer and worship to God, turning God's house into a business. Really, they were turning something sacred into something secular. And here it's interesting because Jesus acts violently. He acts violently. And this is really one of the only uh, parts in Scripture where we see Jesus physically violent. Because Jesus, in general, was lamb-like. In general, he was very lamb-like. He was very calm, very meek, very mild-mannered. You know, the word meekness is strength under control. It's the idea of a horse that is bridled, right? Power and strength, but bridled. But here we see the horse galloping. We see Jesus turning from the lamb into the lion of Judah. He is physically violent, overturning tables, making a whip, whipping people, (laughs) driving people out physically, physical violence. And all the pacifists said, amen. Now, if you're a pacifist, this isn't the church for you. You can leave. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm a pacifist, so I can say that. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. All right. Why am I always kidding? Here we go. <laughs> St. Jerome, who's a church father, said this about, the, um, he, about Christ cleansing the temple. He said that it was Christ's greatest miracle. And the reason why is that he said that Christ alone, by the stripes of one scourge, cast out so great a multitude and overturned so many tables and broke so many seats and did so many things which a vast army could not have done. He did alone. Something fiery and star-like shot from his eyes and the majesty of the Godhead shone in his face. God, Jesus, like, transformed into this, like, supernatural power horse. In Revelation chapter 1, we see that John sees Jesus as he truly is. And it says that Jesus' voice, his voice was the sound of many waters. Has anybody been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, yeah, the thunder of Niagara Falls. That was the voice of Jesus. You can't even imagine what that's like. The voice of God, powerful, just his voice. 
John says he fell down as though he were dead. That's, that's John the beloved, by the way. That's John, the guy who laid his head and was like, hey, Jesus, we're buddies, right? He was Jesus' best friend. He sees Jesus in all his glory, and he falls down as though he were dead. That's the power of Christ that we don't always see here in the gospel. It still exists. You see, the lion is still a part of the lamb. There's a paradox that we're really uncomfortable with. But C.S. Lewis said he's, he's a lion, but he's not a tame lion. A lot of us want to tame the lion. But I find it interesting that Jesus didn't start in the, in the synagogue. I find it interesting that Jesus goes right to the temple. He didn't start, you know, as the king being welcomed in. And remember, they're thinking Jesus is going to deliver us, right? Save us. Hosanna. Hosanna. You know? That Carmen singing. Jesus is like, that's cringe. Stop, Carmen, please. Okay. They're thinking he's going to come and deliver us from the Romans. He doesn't go to Pilate's palace. That's not the first place that he goes. That's the first place we would want him to go, right? Hey, Jesus, I know exactly where the problem is. Uh, The Biden administration the White House, okay? There's, you can get on a train and be there in three hours from 34th Street. You take 34th Street, okay? And get on the train. Three hours, you'll be right there, and it'll be great. Um, and you can, you know, deal with the, Jesus, deal with the Biden administration. These people are so horrible. I know this is, this is the problem in America. The Biden administration, okay? The White House, we need to clean the White House. Clean, cleanse the house. God's not interested in cleansing the White House. He's interested in cleansing his house. He doesn't go to Herod's palace. He could have gone to the Romans. He didn't go to the Romans. He could have gone to the Jewish political leaders. He didn't go to the Jewish political leaders. He goes to the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 9, this is a a different passage of scripture, but in Ezekiel chapter 9, God is putting, placing judgment upon Israel, uh, particularly Jerusalem. And he says, um, I'm going to judge the entire city and I want everybody killed except for people who cry out and groan and are, are sorrowful for the abominations that go on in the city. And there's going to be a mark upon their head, and you are not to kill them. But you're supposed to kill every single other person. And begin at my sanctuary. Ezekiel 9.6. Jerusalem was guilty of bloodshed and of perversion. Bloodshed and perversion got Israel judged by Yahweh. What's America guilty of? Abortion, 65 million children murdered in the womb. Bloodshed. That's real bloodshed. That's real blood. And perversion. Wait till June. Wait till June, right? Bloodshed and perversion. Those are the the things that we traffic in. Those are the things that are a big deal to us. That we want to export 
into Europe, export into Africa, export into the Middle East. Those are the things that we put on our embassies. That's who we are. This is our identity now. Bloodshed and perversion. I said this in the first service. I think that we need to... uh, um, we need to begin to be a lot more discerning about that, those two issues. We need to be a lot more discerning about those two issues. Those are the issues that bring judgment upon America. Those are the issues that bring judgment upon a nation that God judges. And we're listening to podcasts with preachers who never want to talk about those things. How does that make that make sense? Why are the things, the only two things, abortion and LGBTQ, those are the only things that preachers won't talk about. But those are the only things that bring judgment. In scripture, there are sins that cry out to heaven for justice, for vengeance. It's the blood of the innocent when it is shed. God said, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. 65 million children. Think about that. Try to think about that. 65 million. And the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped, he, he sent a nuke on Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped the whole thing out. Because it was an abomination. There are four of those. Another one is dealing, is dealing unjustly with the poor. Dealing unjustly with the poor is another abomination to God. Jesus sees that taking place here in the temple. He's violent. He's angry. People being abused. But he goes to the temple because he realizes something that's very important that we need to realize. The temple was the place of spiritual leadership in the nation of Israel. And, the, and if the leadership was corrupt, the people would become corrupt as well. He goes to the spiritual leadership because the spiritual leadership of the nation is the greatest leadership of the nation. In America, we have a psychosis, I think, to a degree, in the tradition of separating church from state and thinking that the state is really where the main business takes place. And the church is kind of like this sideshow. Yeah, you can, do, you can do whatever you want, just don't interfere with, with politics. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm the main deal. We, he, in America, we recognize the rights of men, but we do not recognize the rights of God. If you have rights, how much more does God have rights? I think God has the right to be recognized. He has the right to be recognized. More than I, my rights. God's rights are more important than my rights. I would love for America to have that revelation. That's the true conception of how church and state ought to relate to each other. And I actually believe that the founding fathers actually believed that. That's a separate, that's a separate discursion. I'm not getting into that. But the point is simply this, that Jesus was angry. Jesus was violent. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. Jesus had righteous indignation. Do you have righteous indignation? For the things that grieve God? Do you have righteous indignation? 
It's a hate crime to have righteous indignation in America. they're, They're calling you a hater. But God expects it of you. If you just sit there and say, oh, not a big deal. That's apathy. God expects you to be angry at the things that anger him. You know, if you want to know if you're emotionally healthy, do you get emotional over the things that God gets emotional over? That's a good litmus test. That's a good. Are you in alignment with the emotions of God? You don't get angry when God gets angry. Maybe your emotions are off. Maybe you're getting angry like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like the priests over things that God doesn't get angry over. You're getting angry over. And the things that God does get angry over, you don't care about. You're happy about. We need to align our emotional life with the Lord. But the truth is that Jesus goes in and is driving all of this sin out of his house violently. And the reason why is because he is holy. The first mark of holiness is separation. Jesus is holy. He is separate from us. And they're saying, Hosanna. This is interesting. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I think it's interesting because David brought the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, which housed the presence of the Lord. And he brought the ark into Jerusalem in order to put it into the temple. And Jesus who is the presence of God. You see, the ark housed the presence of God. Jesus was the presence of God. Jesus is the true ark, you see. And David brings the ark into Jerusalem, and God is so holy that he's, he, the, the ark begins to tip over, and Uzzah, who was a priest who should have known better, went to reach for it and say, hey, God, I got this. And God kills Uzzah. And David gets mad at God. And God's like, I'm holy. You got mad at that? You're mad at, you're mad at the fact that I'm holy? I'm trying to prove a point. Jesus is holy. He goes to the temple because he's trying to prove a point. I believe that in the New Testament church, Jesus is still cleansing his house, both corporately and individually. How do I know this? Because I see this in the New Testament scriptures. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, five times to five different local churches, Jesus says, I have this against you. I have this against you. I have a problem. Hey, I'm Jesus. I'm here to cleanse your temple. I'm here to cleanse your local church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it says, for it, is, it is time for judgment to begin starting with the house of God. I love that. I actually love it that when judgment starts with the house of God, that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. He says, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck that's in your brother's eye. The problem in America is the church. The problem in America is us. The problem in America is me. When we begin to deal with our problems, I think things are going to turn around. 
I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, I used to think that, uh, that the church was going to suffer for the sin of America. Now I believe that America is going to suffer for the sins of the church. Look at what's going on in our nation. Look at the fact that pastors aren't preaching and teaching about the truth in many ways, right? They don't talk. I, I, was, I was this week, a buddy of mine, a pastor friend of mine told me, hey, uh, you know, I just found out a, a friend of mine that this, this, <laughs> this massive pastor whose name you will all know, uh, mass, one of the largest churches in America, he, uh, a bunch of his staff just left because he won't talk about abortion. Won't talk about it. He says, I know who I am. I'm going to stay in my lane. Your lane is faith and morals. Your lane is teaching people what to believe and how to behave in the household of God. Your lane is teaching people what to desire, to desire righteousness. I have seen this way too many times. Pastors get up and they'll say, you know, you know, everybody, you know, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen, listen, listen. If I could do things my way, okay, if I could do things my way, I'd let everybody sleep with everybody, okay? I don't care. I mean, you know, just have fun, you know? <laughs> Wear protection, but have fun. If it was up to me, if it was up to me, I'd let all the letters in the alphabet be what they want to be. If it was up to me, I'd let it, I, I, if it was up to me, guys, if you have to understand, if it was up to me, I would sympathize with your wicked perversion. Yeah. But you know, the guy upstairs, buzzkill guy, joy kill, the, the drag upstairs, you know, and they have this, this good cop, bad cop relationship with God as though they're good cop and God is bad cop. Listen, if you don't love the law of the Lord, you don't love the Lord. Period. The law of the Lord is the will of the Lord. And the will of the Lord is the essence of the Lord. When God tells you to do something, he's communicating his righteousness, his essence to you. If you don't love his will, you don't love him. He cannot be dislocated from his will. His will and his essence are one. His will and his word are one. God is expressing his holiness to you. If you don't love his holiness, you don't love God. And I'm done with pastors making apologies for the holiness of God. Now, I recognize in myself defects where my desires divert from what I should be doing. And I recognize that when God has a standard of holiness and I say, wow, that's difficult. Have you been on Instagram lately, Jesus? Okay. God has a standard, okay? And the idea is that the Lord when he makes a, de a, a demand of me and says, do not lust. That's difficult for a lot of guys, especially in 2023. But the truth is that his standards do not change. And I recognize in myself a defect that I don't want to do that based on my flesh, but based on my spirit, I do. 
And that's, and that's what I have to be obedient with. Because the Lord, the Lord wants you to be obedient. It's obedience that he seeks after. People say, well, this is part of the problem with, okay, I'm running out of time. (laughs) I'm almost done. Worship team can come up. I believe that the American church is going through not just a season of uh, shifting, but a season of sifting, where the Lord is separating wheat from chaff and sheep from goats and the, wor- the church from the world. There should be separation between the world and the church. We've seen the opposite. And I believe that's why there's scandal after scandal after scandal, not just in the people, but in the leadership of the church. Jesus is judging his church. He still walks between the candles. He still, he still seeks those who are going to search for his, for, that are going to love him. In Ephesians chapter five, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having any stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Leonard Ravenhill once said, I've seen a thousand brides. I've seen short brides and tall brides, skinny brides and fat brides. (laughs) He says, I've never seen a dirty bride. Never seen a dirty bride because we want that for ourselves. You desire that for yourself. The Lord desires it for himself too. Really quickly, I believe that the Lord had a special hatred here for covetousness, for greed, for desire for money. I believe it's called the heresy of corporatism. I think the Lord hated money or the love of money because he was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. It was money that actually caused Christ to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. The Lord knows that money causes people to do stupid things. And that's why the scripture says, those who long to be rich stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. The truth is that many times leaders look at this and they say, you know what? If I, I know this is in the Bible, but if I preach it, I'm going to lose my best tithers. If I preach it, I won't be invited to that conference. If I preach it, I'm not going to have as many followers on Instagram. They're not motivated by obedience. They're motivated by avarice, by lust, for for money, by greed, by covetousness. And the Lord says to the money changers, my house shall be called a house of prayer. We need a revival, but we need a revival of sacredness. A revival that says, no, the the Lord must be honored in his house. 
It's God's way. It's not my way. I'm not going to tamper with it. I'm not going to halfway obey. I'm not going to have the spirit of Saul. Jesus had the spirit of David upon him, and David was faithful with everything that the Lord commanded him to do in his generation. And so what I, what I believe is that we need to accept Christ for who he is as Lord of our lives. We need to allow him to purge us and to cleanse us in our temples, which are, is our bodies, but also corporately. The Pharisees said, why, you know, do you see these, these children pr- praising you? And Jesus said, yes, I've perfected praise out of the mouths of infants. And the reason why is because infants accept Christ for who he is with no guile, accepting him in absolute obedience, saying, Lord, come into my house, come into my life, change me, be my king, Tr- come into the Jerusalem of my heart, be, have a triumphal entry into me, and Lord, I accept you as the king. I accept your way and not my way. I'm not going to manipulate and change your word in order to profit and have personal gain. That's what we need. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 20.27 says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world so believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.